Good morning. I, uh, I, I, I really love preaching. I really love it. And so, like, I don't tend to get nervous, but a couple of nights ago, I had a stress dream about preaching. And afterward, I, my sister was there, and I, and I went up to her, and I was like, I don't think I, f- I finished the sermon. And she was like, oh, that's okay. Nobody's paying attention anyway. And I was like, oh, okay, good. And, but then, like, people threw me a party, and I was, so it was a mixed message. And so all that to say, if you're not paying attention, please just don't tell me. Uh, don't tell me. And I'll just continue living in my happy bubble. So we are now two weeks in to the With God Life series, and we're going to continue our trek through Genesis by looking at the life of Abraham. Now, to give a little context to the situation of Genesis, we are, where we are this morning is around page 10 and uh, in your Bible, which is probably 1,100 pages, so we're page 10, and things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. To briefly sum up, God created man and woman in his image, and that is to be his image bearers in the world around him, people who would represent and reflect him in the created world. So God created mankind and then invited mankind into partnership with him to take his image and his community that existed in the paradise of Eden into the rest of the world, on earth as it is in heaven. By the time we get to Genesis 3, chapter 3, a page and a half into your Bible, a competing voice has shown up in the story, enter the serpent, who arrives on the scene and he tempts Eve and Adam with the question, did God really say? And it makes them believe that God was holding out on them and he didn't want them to be like him at all. But newsflash, They were already like him. They bore his image. They worked in close community with him. They lived a with God life. And all it took was one question. Did God really say? And everything was thrown off track. Because instead of trust and faith in the Lord, who had created them and invited them into community and partnership, they chose to listen to a competing voice where before they existed in partnership with God, a with God life, they chose a life apart. By listening to the serpent and giving in to the temptation that he offered, they were choosing their own authority over the authority of the God who had created them. And just like that, all of created order was thrown off track. But almost immediately after their sin, the Lord introduced a plan of rescue. He told the serpent and the woman that their offspring would be at odds for generations to come. But there would be a time when the offspring of the woman would defeat the serpent forever. God's plan, the story of the Bible, is the reconciliation of a broken and lost world. God's business through the Bible and through our lives is to bring us back into a restored community with him. And as we learned last week in Genesis chapter 12, he's doing that through the line of Abram. So let's look back at chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and this will be up on the screen for you. 
He said, he told Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells Abram to go and he does. That was literally the only thing that Abram was commanded to do. And that's important to notice. God tells Abram to go But every other thing that he says is something that the Lord is going to do himself. He says, you go. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's not a list of hoops that Abram has to jump through or test to prove that he's worthy. The Lord is telling him to go because I'm going to do something through you. And this happens in chapter 12. And Abram does what he's told to do. But by the time we get to chapter 15, Abram and Sarai, who is his wife, and they're both pretty advanced in years, are still without children. And Abram is wondering, as one would, where are all these nations going to come from? We don't have time to go through it this morning, but go back and read chapter 15 because it's pretty incredible. Abram laments not having an heir, and the Lord tells him, like, not only will you have an heir, you'll have a son from your own body. And not only that, but the Lord says, I will be the one who makes this happen. This is my work. I will do it. Which brings us to chapter 16. Because even after chapter 12 and chapter 15, there is still no son. There is no heir. There has thus far been no promise fulfillment. So let's pick up the story in Genesis 16, verse 1. This will be on the screen also. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children, so go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So this is 10 years after Genesis chapter 12. Abram is roughly 85 at this point in the story. Sarai is roughly 75. For all the things that the Lord has told them up to this point in the story, nothing has happened. And from Sarai's perspective, nothing will happen, at least as far as her person is concerned. She says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. She's already determined that she's out of the game. As humans and finite beings, we get really concerned with things like timelines, logistics. You've told me the what, you have not told me the how. So now we're 10 years into the story of Abram and Sarai, and at least from their perspective, there is nothing to show for it, and there is no clue on the horizon. They don't see anything coming. Things will remain as they are for the foreseeable future unless something is done. Because you see, there is something that happens to us when we put all of our focus on the promises of the Lord. We lose sight of the Lord himself. We stop trusting. We stop seeking. Waiting is really difficult. And disappointment and frustration and pain and heartbreak are very real. 
So be careful before you judge Sarai too harshly. It, it, is she behaving well? Uh, no, quite the contrary. Uh, and it gets ugly. But each of us can see ourselves in her. Sarah is not thinking of the bigger picture here because there is no bigger picture from her perspective. Some details need to be hashed out. She has lost sight of the Lord because she has become too focused on what he has said. I grew up in a charismatic denomination, and there are a lot of things that I really appreciate coming from that kind of background, mostly because it takes a lot to weird me out in church. I can handle a lot of stuff. But I also grew up with the experience of encountering the Lord, and that led to some pretty powerful and important moments in my life. And because of the nature of the denomination, people were pretty open about sharing words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophetic words, etc. And I grew up hearing these messages from the Lord from a really young age. But instead of receiving them as gifts of hope and encouragement and letting my trust and faith build because just knowing that the Lord is near and having an awareness of him, I unknowingly internalized these, these words, these gifts, these promises, and they became measuring rods and standards in my life. So any time I would look back on or reflect upon what had been said or spoken over me, I would dwell on the fact that it hasn't happened. Here is this standard that I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to have, and I can't reach it. I can't get there. I don't know what to do to make this happen. What do I have to do to get there? And that's a problem. Because you see, listen, it's not for me to figure out. And it took me a long time to get to that realization. Like literally two months ago. It was literally two months ago. (laughs) The promises of God are not for you to figure out or make happen. It's not your job. And I believe that the Lord tells us things to encourage us to build us up, to build our hope, to build up our faith and trust in him. And he tells us these things to draw us nearer to himself. And he tells us these things because he's invited us into partnership with himself. But it's not up to us to figure out. The promises of God are his to work out. But you see, Sarai has taken it upon herself to see these things worked out. Now, what she presents in this situation is a perfectly reasonable approach, culturally speaking. It was a normal practice to use a servant as a surrogate. Abram would have an heir. Sarah would have a son. No harm, no foul, right? When we put all of our focus on the promises of God, we lose sight of the people around us. Because we become consumed with what the Lord has for me. We're very individualistic when it comes to our faith, aren't we? (laughs) My promises, my blessings, my heartache, my pain. The literal translation of what Sarai says in verse 2, when she says, so that I might have a son through her, the literal translation is so that I might be built up. The Lord does not factor into her equation at all, apart from her saying what he has not done for her. 
And it's easy to assume that Abram is being passive in this whole situation, and to a degree he is, but also what she's proposing is a purpose, is like a reasonable thing. He would have an heir from his own body, like the Lord said in Genesis 15, and the things that the Lord has spoken to them can begin to happen. So really, it all works out. They see a path forward, they're taking it. But hear me now, maybe some of you really need to hear this, not every open door is from the Lord. Now, I don't think he makes things purposely hard or confusing for us. He has invited us into partnership, remember? So when opportunities present themselves, when a door opens and we see it, our job is to take those opportunities back to the Lord and say, what do you say about this? It's living a with God life that is in tune to his voice and his presence. And he is totally absent from this plan. They do not consult him at all. Our focus, our plans, our blessings, our rights, our pain, our hurt, our waiting. When we focus on what's mine, we lose sight of the people around us. And that has potential to do a lot of damage. In this case, the collateral damage is named Hagar. Now, we learn earlier in the passage that Hagar is Sarai's Egyptian maidservant. She has no autonomy. She has no identity. She has no status. She has no say over what will happen to her. Consent isn't even a word. She is a possession. She is a vessel. She is a means to an end. The baby that she conceives won't even be her baby. Getting what they want comes at the expense of somebody else that they deem as totally expendable. So, Abram sleeps with Hagar. She conceives. It causes dissension in the household. Who is surprised by that? Hagar looks at Sarai with contempt. Sarai gets angry at Abram and blames him for their current situation. Abram passively tells Sarai, do whatever you want with Hagar and removes himself from the situation. So Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. And it's interesting to know that this phrase, dealt harshly, is the same phrase that is used of the Egyptians describing how they treat the Hebrew slaves. Sarai treated Hagar with incredible cruelty. Hagar is living a life she did not ask for, experiencing a situation she had no say in. I do not care if it was a cultural, it was acceptably cultural at the time. She is a person who is not being treated as a person. And now, even though everything is going according to Sarai's plan, she's mad about it. And Hagar continues to experience gross injustice as a result. Do not become so focused on yourself and what is yours that everyone else around you becomes expendable. Collateral damage. I got to tell you guys, it does not take much looking around into the world around us or much of a deep dive into world history to, to recognize that the church, the bride of Christ, leaves a lot of collateral damage around us all in the name of getting what's ours, our blessing, our promises. Naturally, what happens next in the story is that Hagar runs away. Uh, same girl. <laughs> Ain't nobody here for that. A slave girl with nothing on the run. And let's pick the story up in verse 7. 
the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. So it's more than likely that Hagar has been on the run for several days. Later on in the passage, um, Kadesh is mentioned, and, that w- and Kadesh was a, a place that was several days away from where Abram was camped. Uh, so Hagar had been on the run. She'd found this spring in the wilderness, and she's resting there, probably scared, probably thinking about the uncertainty of her future, and definitely pregnant. And this is where the Lord meets her. You should know that any time the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, we're not just dealing with some messenger of God. It is argued quite well, in my opinion, that the angel of the Lord is the physical embodiment of the Lord himself. Some would say a pre-incarnate Christ, because Christ is the physical embodiment of the Lord among us. Angels and other messengers speak for the Lord. The angel of the Lord speaks as the Lord. The Lord himself in physical form has come to talk to Hagar. This victimized, brutalized, marginalized woman who has not been treated as a whole person, he shows up on the scene and he calls her by name. And he asks her questions. Where are you, where are you coming from? Where are you going? And this isn't so much about physical locations as it is about past experiences and future realities. And she tells him, I'm fleeing my mistress. And that's all she says. And she's so focused on the past, like who can even fathom a future in this situation? And he tells her something surprising. And I think when you first read it, a little bit off-putting because like what? He says, go back and submit to her authority. Oh, what? Because that ain't fair. And that seems like the opposite of what is reasonable and what is fair. But he tells her that the way she left is not going to be the way that she's returning. When she left, she had nothing. She was totally defenseless. When she returns, she's she's returning as the mother of multitudes. This woman, not a man, not a husband, not a patriarch, receives a covenant-type blessing directly and personally from the Lord. Let's see how the story continues in verse 11. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. The Lord has heard her cries of distress. He knows her situation. He knows it's unfair. He sees her as a person, and he has stepped in to the damage that has been done to her life. She gets her own covenant promise. Ishmael will multiply, and he will be at no one's beck and call. Later, in chapter 17, the Lord says that Ishmael will be the father of princes and will be made into a great nation. But 
This promise and blessing is not tied to the one given to Abram in chapter 12 and chapter 15. Ishmael is not part of the redemptive history that will come from Abram's line. He is not the promised heir from Genesis chapter 15. There is no promise that he will be a light to the nations. Quite the contrary. The angel of the Lord states that he will actually be in conflict with those around him. And this is part of the collateral damage that happens when we take it upon ourselves to enact our own promises. The consequences can be far-reaching and long-term. Many Arab nations today claim direct descendancy from the line of Ishmael. The prophet Muhammad claimed direct descendancy from the line of Ishmael. And if that is true, then, then what the angel of the Lord said still stands. There is a lot of remaining conflict Because one person focused too much on the promise of the Lord and what they did not have and lost focus of the Lord himself. But we're not yet done with Hagar. So picking up in verse 13, it says, Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Be'er Lahai Ra'i, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. This is an incredible encounter. Because not only has the Lord heard her distress, he made himself visible and known in the midst of her distress. She says, I see the living one who sees me. The Lord has shown up in this situation and let this marginalized woman with no identity see who he is. And yes, he sends her back into the very location that did so much damage to her life. But after her encounter, she leaves a different person. She has an identity now. One who is heard and seen by the living God. She returns home, she gives birth, her son remains her own. This passage, while studying this passage, I just kept thinking so much about the passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who had been discarded, marginalized. God steps into her situation in the person of Jesus and meets her in the midst of all her damage. Not only meets her, but reveals an important truth about himself, that he is the Messiah. He's the one who will save. He is the offspring mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, who will defeat the serpent forever. He is the one who is reconciling all things to himself. The Lord can meet you in the midst of all your damage, whether self-inflicted, or inflicted by the injustice of, other, of others, whatever damage you have experienced, it is not enough to keep you from being seen by the living God. He is in the business of reconciliation, and he will meet us wherever we are, regardless of what got us there, and even in the midst of sin and messing up. I, uh, I told this story uh, several years ago, to our very first Alpha group, but it's been long enough, and it came to mind again as I was working through this sermon. So if you've heard this story before, sorry, not sorry, 
Um, so I have, uh, I have, my house is pretty old. Parts of it are, are roughly 160 years old. And needless to say, it has a lot of quirks. Um, and so when it came time for the inspection, this was my very first house. Um, I was there with the inspector, but my dad was there too because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know stuff. And I tell him all the time, like, this is why I have a dad, so. But he was there to help me, and he tried his best to, like, stand off to the side so that I was the one that the inspector was talking to. And if you've ever bought a house before, you know that this is, like, a necessary thing, I guess, because you have to know everything that's wrong with your house before you buy it, and it's, like, not an encouraging thing. It's not an encouraging moment. So when the inspector presented his list of all the things that were wrong with the house, uh, with a level of enthusiasm that was a little concerning, uh, the list was very long, and I could feel blood, like, draining from my face. And my dad, who was probably watching my face, very quietly stepped up beside me, and, be, and as the inspector continued, he began to say things like, don't worry about that. We can fix it. That's not a problem. We can get that easily enough. That's not a big deal. He has to say that. And it made me feel better. Because even though the inspector was telling me this whole list of stuff that needed to be addressed, I trust my dad. And I know that he has my best interest in mind, so I knew that I could believe him when he said, we can fix that. And by we, I mean him. <laughs> I don't go down into the crawl space or up into the attic. Uh, I don't even know what I'm looking at, so. <laughs> Though I did have to fix my kitchen sink earlier this week. It went very badly. Justin and Jana came over. Uh, it was a whole saga. There was much weeping. It's fine. <laughs> I believe that the Lord showed me this illustration to, to show how he shows up in the damage of our situation. Because there is a serpent who loves to come to you as a competing voice to the Lord and present you with a whole laundry list of your damage, your brokenness your ugliness that's hidden deep down, your selfishness, the damage you have done to other people, the damage that has been done to you, and it's heavy, and it's tragic. But the Lord, the one who is interested in reconciling all things to himself, steps into that reality of our damage, moves up quietly besides us, and begins to whisper, I can fix that. I can fix that. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I know your situation. I know you. I can fix it. I can make you new. Because the God who makes promises is the God who will see those promises through. Abram and Sarai did not demonstrate faithful behavior in this passage. And it would be really easy for the Lord to come in and say, you didn't trust me, now you lose. You've lost. This isn't Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Uh, if you don't get that reference, I'm old, it's fine. <laughs> Even in the midst of our lack of faith, faithfulness, his plans for redemption don't change. He still uses Abram and Sarai. He still gifts them a child from their own bodies, regardless of their age. He still carries out his promises. 
Because our sin, my sin, your sin, the damage that has been done to our lives by ourselves or by other people, that does not have the final say. It doesn't have the final say. The story is not over until the Lord says that it's over. So I want to close with this. And uh, worship team, you guys can come back up. First, I want to offer an exhortation, an encouragement. If you are suffering right now, the damage in and around your life feels like it's too much. You're in a situation that is unfair, that you didn't ask for, that is happening to you without your say, or you're in a situation of your own making that feels too heavy and too far gone, listen to me. The Lord hears your cries and sees you. And he can step into your situation as the living God who saves and makes things new. Ask him. Ask him for help. Just ask. You can ask us as well. We're here. We want to know you. We want, we want to walk with you. We want to see healing and wholeness brought into your life. Let us know. There is no situation that is without the possibility of reconciliation with God. No situation. Just ask. Ask him for help. And finally, I want to leave you with a challenge. It is, it is human nature to focus on ourselves. What's mine? What I'm owed? What I deserve? What I have a right to? What is good in my own eyes? The promises that the Lord has made me? Do not become so focused on yourself that you lose sight of who the Lord actually is. Do not become so focused on yourself that the people around you become expendable, ignorable, or secondary, and as a result, are left as collateral damage in your wake. I'm talking to myself, too. It's all of us, guys. We are made to be image bearers of the living God to reflect and represent him to the world around us. It, that means it's not our kingdom, it's his kingdom. As in heaven, so on earth. It's his business, not what I get out of it. My challenge to you is to honestly ask yourself the following questions. And I think these are going to be up on the slides. Ask yourself the following questions. Number one, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I leaving a wake of damage behind me? Am I caring more about myself and what is mine than the people around me? Am I reflecting and representing the Lord to the people around me? And then, once you've asked those, yourself those questions, 
Let the Lord speak into the reality of that situation. Let him bring things to mind. Let him point things out. He's not going to condemn you. And when he corrects, it's correction done out of love. So when you have done that, when you have asked those questions and sat with the Lord, repent and ask him what needs to change. Remember that you are in a partnership with him and your task is to keep your sight laser focused on him. He will work out his plan. He'll do it. He's done it so far. He'll continue to do it. Your story is not the end of the story. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that regardless of the ugliness of our situation, you still step into the damage, damage that we have done to ourselves, damage that we have done to others, damage that has been done to us. You step in and you say, I can fix that. Lord, we ask that you would break our hearts. Break our hearts. That we would be so sensitive to our motivations, to our actions. That the people around us would not become collateral damage in our pursuit of getting what's ours. But that the people around us would see you in us. The hope of glory the promise of reconciliation and redemption. Lord, let us be that light, that reflection that represents you. Thank you that you walk with us, that you invite us into partnership. That even when we sin, even when we mess up, that's not the end. You don't kick us out, make us start over. We thank you that we keep going. We ask as we move into this week, we would be those people who reflect and represent you well. And that we would say, not my kingdom, but your kingdom. We love you. We thank you for the truth of your word and the promise of who you are. And it's in your awesome name we pray.